Hello, friends. Welcome to the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is Stephen Dimmitt, and my guest today is Nathaniel Coleman. Nathaniel is an American professional climber hailing from Salt Lake City, Utah. He is a four-time U.S. national bouldering champion, a multiple-time World Cup medalist, and most recently, he became a silver medalist at the Tokyo Olympics in climbing. This was a really fun conversation. We recorded this a little over a month ago. And of course, we talked about all things Olympics. We talked about Nathaniel's preparation for qualifying for the Olympics and how his training and prep changed from trying to qualify to then preparing for Tokyo itself. How his coaches at USA Climbing built a sauna for him and some of his teammates to train in for the hot and humid conditions in Tokyo and what some of his sauna climbing sessions looked like. They sounded totally heinous and fascinating. We talked about what it was like to actually fly over to Tokyo and to see everything that had been prepared, what the Olympic experience was like. And then we talked, of course, about his actual performances in the Olympics as well, about qualifying. He didn't think he was going to make it to finals and then about finals and finally what it felt like to win the silver medal and represent the United States on the podium at the first Olympics featuring climbing. Nathaniel is a competitor at heart, but he's also no stranger to rock climbing. We talked a little bit about his first descent of the Grand Illusion, a V16 in Little Cottonwood Canyon. We talked about Lee Majors, a first descent that he did in Southern Arizona, a 14 plus sport route on limestone and his potential plans to go back for the extension of that. We talked about some of his sport climbing goals and plans moving forward. And we talked about some of his favorite hobbies and how those things play into his focus and his climbing. For those of you who are listening for the first time that saw Nathaniel's name and wanted to hear more about how an Olympian prepares for competition, welcome. It's really good to have you here. I really hope you enjoy the show and I hope you branch out and explore some other episodes. I think you'll actually really enjoy hearing some amazing stories from amazing rock climbers from all different walks of life. And I really hope you enjoy it. Again, great to have you here. For those of you who are regular listeners to the show, I've got a new follow-up coming out this week with Steve Bechtel. I sat down with him again over Zoom and had a really great conversation we talked about changing training programs and when to move on from something that isn't working versus when to stick with it and see it through. I think that's a really interesting conversation, something that is surprisingly hard to navigate when you're in the midst of a training program and you feel stuck. And this time we also got into more of Steve's climbing. I had been wanting to ask him for some time about more of his climbing history, and then also how he leveled up to climb his first 514. If you don't know that, Steve climbed his first 14A in his late 40s after decades of climbing. And that to me is really interesting and really inspiring coming from someone who spent so much of their life learning about training. I wanted to know what it was that needed to change for him to level up and break new ground. So. That'll come out on Thursday. You'll see a teaser for that, and the full-length episode will be available for patrons that same day. And if you want to support the show and hear the whole thing, you can sign up for Patreon. It's $5 per month, and it's what makes the podcast go round and round. 
You can check it out at patreon.com slash thenuggetclimbing. There's a link right there in your podcast app. Okay, without further ado, please enjoy this glimpse into the world of an Olympic athlete with Nathaniel Coleman. How's it going? How are you? How are you doing? Doing good. Um, yeah, doing good on a rest day. So, just hanging. Nice. This feels like good timing. I am recording this from a parking lot. This is a little behind the scenes into how a, a podcast is made from you know from living in a van but i'm sitting in a parking lot right now i've got you propped up on my bed i'm using my bed as a standing desk and there was a garbage truck emptying a gigantic metal garbage can like 10 feet away from my van about three minutes ago <laughs> and he just finished up and left so uh i feel like the universe is is on our side today it's good That's perfect good start where are you right now i'm in estes park colorado Nice. Yeah, trying to finish off one last boulder project for the season. Am I talking to you in Salt Lake? Are you home right now? Yeah, yeah, this is home. What does a Tuesday morning in the life of Nathaniel Coleman look like these days? <laughs> um, on a rest day, it's wake up late, have some breakfast, chat with the roommates, and uh, maybe answer some emails if I'm behind. Okay. Sponsors, things like that. Yeah. On a training day, it's, it's usually try to get out of the house by 10, head to either the training center or one of the gyms. Okay. I want to more or less jump straight into the Olympics. I think there's so much we can talk about there and I'm sure that's why most people are tuning in or, or what they're most interested in hearing about. And I imagine that some people listening are tuning in for the first time because they want to hear your story and they've just seen you compete in the Olympics and that has piqued their curiosity. What is this rock climbing thing? And they want to learn more. So I want to more or less dive right into it, but I'm really curious what you've been up to for the last two months and what that's looked like. So you finished the Olympics, received a silver medal, huge congratulations about two months ago. And I'm just curious what the last two months have looked like for you. Did you give yourself a chance to relax, kick your heels up, watch some crappy TV, stay up late? You know, are, are you celebrating or was it just right back into the grind? What have the last couple of months looked like for you? Yeah, I took... I took a little break from climbing. Um, I tried not to let my lifestyle get too casual because I know that oftentimes it's hard for me to pull back out of that after, after that. So I took about a week, no climbing. Um, I wish I would have done more honestly, but, uh, we were like resetting the spray wall at the training center and I just, it looked so good. I, I had to climb on it. So. <laughs> one week, <laughs> but I've been, dude. I've been, what was that? <laughs> Only one week off after the Olympics. That is crazy. Yeah. But not. I guess not surprising. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I, I've been getting back into it uh, slowly. And I haven't been getting back into like organized training. I've been focusing mostly on outdoor sport climbing, uh, which is you know, just kind of by nature, less, 
physically taxing than a full training cycle. Mm. So, or even just bouldering by contrast. And yeah, I, I feel like, I feel like I'm not, um, burning out. I still feel like I'm, I'm building into this next season. So Mm. when you say next season, is that competition season? Yeah, that's the 2022 world cup season. Okay. I'll start in, uh, I'll start in April, I think. Okay. Yeah. I want to dig into that. I want to dig into your motivation and goals and when the Olympics first became a goal for you. Because when I think of you, I do think of you as a competition climber. You have such, I also think of the word consistency. You, you've had such a, a run of gold medals. And I think it was 2016 to 18, you won the Bouldering National Championship three times in a row. You won it a couple of years later, if I'm getting all that right. And you've managed to do some really hard rock climbs along the way, but it seems like those are circumstantial and kind of sprinkled in when opportunities present themselves. But it it seems to me like your focus is always on the competitions. And we, you know, societally, like as a global society, we elevate the Olympics. We hold that kind of at the top, like that is the pinnacle of competition in sport. And of course, it's a little strange with climbing because climbing has this legacy, um, it's established in competition and then this is its first kind of dip into the Olympic world. But nonetheless, it is this pinnacle competition experience. I'm wondering, when did you first learn that the, that climbing would be featured in the Olympics? And when did that first become a goal? Yeah. Um, I think it was 2016 that the general population and including myself found out that, climbing would be I, I forget if it was guaranteed or if it was just very likely that climbing would be in the 2020 games um and it felt really good it felt like I was proud of my sport for being recognized on that level and it was exciting because I knew that everybody would be trying to qualify including myself and uh, I kind of decided then that I would try to qualify I don't know how much realistic chance I gave myself, but I, I still thought, um, you know, just that act of trying would be worth it and would be fun. Mm. I'd love to hear, we, we talked about this a little bit a few weeks ago, but I'd love to hear how your goals evolved as the process went on. Um, you, you didn't give yourself much of a chance at first. Did that change as you got closer to, to qualifying? Yeah. Um, the first goal was to make, well, let's see, what was the first goal? You had to qualify for the U S team that would be doing the world cups and trying to use those as preparation for qualifying for, for the games. And that was probably 2018 we had some national championships and I don't, I don't remember being too stressed about those. I think I made it onto the bouldering team, but maybe not the lead team. Uh, and so I just focused on the bouldering season. Uh, 2019, I was actually browsing through my, uh, notes on my phone and I found a a note titled mantra for combined nationals, 2019. Mm. And this was like the first real, 
the first part of the process of qualifying for the U.S. team that would then go on and try to qualify for the actual Olympics. So it was like uh, nowhere really close to even getting to the games. Um, but my mantra was, I want to give everything I can, trust in the training, I will be ready, I can do this. And that was kind of, uh, that kind of mantra isn't very typical for me. And I feel like it was something that I needed at that time because I really felt a lot of nerves going into this competition. You know, our, our selection in the U.S. was, it felt like kind of a dice roll because there were a lot of strong competitors. And if you messed up this one competition, you wouldn't have a chance for another year to try to qualify until I think the Pan American Games. So I was super nervous for that, but it ended up going well enough that I, I along with four other men and five other women qualified for the, the team to try to qualify, <laughs> qualified for the team to try to qualify. Wow. And then, um, you know, the 2019 season, it was, it was one of my best seasons. It was my best season yet. Oh, actually, no, it wasn't. It was one of my best seasons <laughs> in the world cups. Um, and I was surprisingly close to qualifying for the games at the world championships. And that was in middle of the year, 2019. I was surprisingly close, which kind of blew my mind and it let me reset my expectations. I kind of realized that I actually, I proved to myself that I was among the top 20 competition men in the world and that I could qualify for the Olympics, but also that if I did, it would be because I deserved it, not because it was some sort of fluke. Mm. And that was a combined format competition? Yeah, it was uh, single disciplines. But then if you did well enough in all three of the disciplines, you could qualify for the combined qualification, which was 20 men and 20 women, which I did qualify for. And then... I think I ended up in like 13th. So didn't make finals, which was top eight. But I think that the the invitation list went down to 11th, maybe 12th. I remember it was like close enough to where I was placed, where if one person, if I had been one spot higher, essentially, I would have qualified then there with Brooke. Mm. <laughs> Man, so many layers. <laughs> I know, dude, it is so complicated. Um, And USA Climbing was, they were putting in a lot of work to try to sort through all the logistics and and make the the job and the vision as easy for us as possible. Mm. I think that helped a lot. Helping you distill things down into this is my next clear goal. Exactly. Got it. Okay. I want to return to that mantra and ask you more about that. You said, I'm kind of, I want to explore both sides of it. You said that that was different for, for you, something kind of mm-hmm. new for you. Um, mm-hmm. So first I'm curious, what did you do with that mantra? Is that something you're repeating to yourself, just kind of going on on repeat in the back of your mind always? Is it ever present? Are you sitting down and, and really reflecting on that at specific times or before bed? Or how do you actually use that mantra? And I'd also love to explore 
what was more typical before that and and kind of the contrast there. I think that's interesting. Yeah. So I, I think I was using this mantra, um, repeating it to myself whenever I felt nervous for the competition ahead. And that could have been as early as a month before the competition. I was trying a new training cycle and I felt like it was working, but it's always scary to try something new before, mm. before a big competition. And so that's why I was telling myself, trust in the training. And that's also a mantra that comes from uh, Tyson Shaney, who, who wrote my training plan for that comp. Mm. And, and the fact that I was saying, I will be ready and I can do this. Um, I feel like most of the time in national competitions, I have enough confidence in myself that I'm not focusing on self-belief. I'm focusing on letting go of my expectations of doing well actually, which I think are kind of like opposite ends of the mental spectrum. But for whatever reason, against the same group of competitors, I was feeling, I was feeling like I would have to uh, really perform my best to have a chance to, to qualify. Mm. Yeah. I, man, there's, there's so so many juicy topics to explore here. I'm, I'm really, you know, I know one thing you get asked about a lot, rightly so, is your mental game and uh, your focus. And, and you stand out really among anyone else, everyone else in the competitive climbing scene because of your ability to perform under pressure. It just seems like every time you step up to the plate, bottom of the ninth with the bases loaded, you just hit a grand slam and really make it happen when it counts. I wonder if any climbers will even recognize the baseball analogy there. Maybe that's <laughs> <laughs> stick with climbing. But it, it is it is amazing to see you do that. And that is so interesting. Like you have this confidence, but then letting go of the expectations so you don't feel that pressure. I, like it seems like you really thrive under the pressure, but it sounds like it's important to you to try to dissipate some of that by by alleviating those or letting go of some of those expectations. Um, there wasn't even a question in that word salad that I just threw at you, but I'm I'm curious. <laughs> I'm curious where your confidence comes from. Is that something that is just an innate part of your personality? Is that something you've tried to really cultivate? Has it just been there? Like, wh where does that come from? Is there anything you can kind of pinpoint that to? I think I would give most of the credit to my parents. Um, they're just fantastic people. And they raised me with, I think, a fantastic balance of being on top of me, making sure that I'm doing what I need to do. And that I'm successful in like school and, and other things that are I'm passionate about, but then also letting me, letting me choose what I'm actually wanting to invest my time in. Mm. Um, and when I became, when it became apparent that I was talented at climbing and that I enjoyed it, they didn't push me to go, you know, all in. They supported me as much as they could financially to get to the competitions, but I never felt pressure from them to perform. And I think that that really allowed me to just compete for myself. And I think because of the success that I experienced when I was young in national competitions and in youth competitions, 
it just kind of built up this feeling of self-belief, you know, in local and, and regional and divisional competitions, I would, I would oftentimes take first. And the more that that happened, the more that I believed in myself, but also the more that I didn't want to lose that, that, that title. So mm. it was something that I had to deal with for many, many years. And it's now, it's now the base, the building base of my mental game in competition. Man, I just can't help but wonder, does that ever backfire? Like, does that sense of belief, I guess just knowing that you have more to lose potentially, like knowing that you have won so many things in the past, how do you deal with that when that rears its ugly head, you know, when it feels more like you have more to lose versus opportunity? Yeah. Um, the thing that always saves me is if I'm going into a competition that I feel like I should win, um, and then I don't, the thing that always saves me is the fact that I know that every competition is a bit of a dice roll. And so many of us competitors on the national circuit are very close in ability. And it just comes down to who is able to tap into their potential on that given competition day. And sometimes I sign up for a competition and I get there. And for one reason or another, I'm actually not, not as excited to be competing as I usually am. And I'll, I'll still do my best, but I don't perform to my potential. And then somebody else has a fantastic day. And, uh, and that's just how it goes. Mm. That's, that's what makes the wins, you know, feel good when, mm. when you have the failures to compare them to and not even failures, you know, just like, <laughs> yeah, Stand, standing on the side of the podium instead of the top of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, not even making finals at yeah. the national cup. That's happened a couple of times to me as well. Mm. Um, I got a chance to spend quite a bit of time with Kyle O'Meara this spring and oh, yeah. he's someone Lucky that I man. reached out to. <laughs> What's that? You're a lucky man. <laughs> I am a lucky man. He's just the best. That smile, uh, the way his eyes just crinkle when he smiles and, the, and they just light up. He still is more in love with climbing than ever. Yeah, yeah. great guy. And uh, for people listening, he used to coach you when you were a teenager. What what years mm -hmm. were that? Do you remember the time frame there? I don't remember exactly. I feel like he was with us for a good three to four years um, before I aged out of the competition team. So that probably would have been from the time I was like 15 to 19. Okay. Um, yeah. And he and I were climbing together in St. George and, and just climbing around each other. We climbed together some days and he was just at the crag with another partner some days. And we had a lot of conversations. Um, I'm always interested in what other people are doing. I always have so many questions. I still, one thing I wrestle with a lot is whether I'm, whether I'm climbing enough or too, too much or too little, as basic as that is, I, there's some part of me that always, my intuition is that I always need to do more and suffer more. And I don't mm -hmm. think that's a good intuition. I think a lot of it comes from our culture and from like watching the Rocky movies and whatever else. But um, <laughs> so that's my struggle. And, and I remember kind of having some conversations with him and him referencing you quite a number of times. And, and I was just really fascinated to kind of get a glimpse into at least that time in your life and how relaxed and just kind of how 
go with the flow and unstructured you you were at that time with your training. And he, you know, he told multiple stories of you showing up to the gym a certain day or to an outdoor project a certain day with your shoes, with all your stuff, and just sitting there and just saying like, yeah, I'm not feeling it today. And just not even putting your climbing shoes on. And that is fascinating to me. Because if I tell myself like I'm going to the gym or if I go to the, the boulder or the project or whatever, like I, I rally, like I'm like, I, I got to try to make it happen right now, whether I'm kind of totally feeling it or not. So I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about your philosophy with that, how that served you and whether or not that's, that's evolved or changed. I think that um, the way that training works for me is definitely a little bit lower intensity at times than other people. Like when I compare myself to Sean Bailey and the way that he trains, he goes hard, like multiple sessions a week, sometimes multiple sessions a day. And if I try to keep up with him, I just get crushed. My elbows start hurting. Everything starts hurting. And I just show up and I'm not excited at all to climb. Hmm. So, you know, whether it's uh, physiological or just what I've been practicing for many years, um, I thrive on a plan that gives me adequate rest. And I think that that was something that Kyle always kind of encouraged me to listen to and um, that my other coaches also encouraged me to listen to, you know, we were, we were about the training when it was time, but if we ever felt like tweaky or on the verge of injury, they encouraged us to recognize that and then take the appropriate steps to make sure we avoided it. So I think, um, being on the youth team and having Kyle as a coach, there were definitely many years when our training wasn't that structured, but I think one year in particular stands out to me and that's 2015. Um, I was 18 at the time and I got a really structured training plan from one of my coaches, Noah Bigwood. And I stuck to it and I had a lot of fun sticking to it. There were days when I showed up and I, I wasn't excited to train or climb, but then by getting through it, it gave me a sense of accomplishment. And, uh, I learned from that season, I learned that there is a balance to listening to your body and to your motivation and pushing through it at mm. sometimes. So I'm, I'm really interested. I'd love to hear you talk about like what types of approaches or the diversity of approaches that you observe competing with so many people at such a high level. You know, you talked about Sean Bailey already. Um, and I've talked to Allison Vest on the podcast. And for people listening, she's a, you know, three-time Canadian national champion. She's a total badass. And she also lives with her roommate, Kyra Condi, who also competed in Tokyo. And it sounds like those two just train, 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 train. It's, it's kind of like the more is better, the more is more approach. And they're in the gym six days a week, often two times a day. But one thing that Allison talked about was just how fascinating it is, the, the diversity in approaches. Like there's people like them that are having success. There's people that are training three days a week and resting a lot more that are having the same success. So I'm curious what you've observed from other competitors. Are, are most of the people showing up at the Olympics do you get a glimpse into their preparation and, and what their training looks like? And are most of them training every day or, or is there this kind of 
broad spectrum? Unfortunately, I don't. Um, I don't talk to them much about their like, you know, the real details of their training plan. Yeah. I remember watching a video about Jan Hoyer that's many years old. And he talks about how he only trained at the time, he only trained like 15 hours a week or something. And, um, <laughs> and that was, that was really low. Uh, well, I'm, no, I'm laughing because for most people listening to them, that's probably a mind blowing amount of training, but. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. <laughs> you know, that's, um, yeah. Yeah. But so yeah, I, I hear guess, you. So I hear you. World, world cup standard. Um, 15 hours a week is pretty low. That's, mm-hmm. you know, maybe one double session or maybe just five three-hour sessions in the gym. Do you know what would be more typical? So when I was at my peak of training in the preseason, I was doing, uh, I think I had one week where I hit 24 hours. And that was that was <laughs> quite a bit for me. And, uh, but most, most weeks would range between, uh, 18 and 22. So, and like, I'd say half of that, or maybe even more than half of that was off the wall training. So either cardio circuits or weightlifting, um, yeah, et cetera. Mm. And I, I kind of get the feeling that it's, it's just hard for me to imagine anybody training more than 24 hours a week, other than maybe like, it seems like Adam Andra had that one training cycle when he was first being coached by Patchy, where he was doing double sessions, like almost every day. So that, that must've been fucked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, 24 hours. So four hours a day, six times a week. I mean, that, yeah, that really blows my mind. And I would, I would never do, I think the most important thing for me is to have rest days or even double rest days within the week. Um, I can't trace train six days a week. I need to have, you know, usually two days and then a rest day, sometimes three days and then, and then a rest day or two. Um, so that 24 hours is broken into like three hour session in the morning, three hour session at night. Mm. And then four of those dispersed throughout the week mm. or sometimes just a single three hour session per day. Man, I would love to get into some of the nuts and bolts of it. And usually I'm interested in asking people about their training because I want to apply it to my own climbing. And in this case, I don't think any of it's going to be relevant at all. <laughs> I just think it's really interesting. And I think people will want to hear about it. Um, I remember you saying that you're, your approach or your prep changed quite a bit from trying to qualify for the Olympics versus once you were actually preparing for the Olympic competition. Mm-hmm. Can you elaborate on that? Maybe give us just a glimpse of what you were doing leading up to qualifying and then, and then how things shifted. Yeah. I think that leading up to qualifying, we were, it was such a busy season that it was hard to like, really peak for one single event, um, especially when we had multiple chances to qualify throughout the year. So my preparation to try to qualify for the Olympics was we definitely had some pre-World Cup season training in the in the winter slash spring. And then we did a full season of World Cups um, where you're just really trying to maintain your strength 
So that's mostly, mostly climbing based workouts. And we would try to focus on, I think for me, mostly bouldering with a good chunk of sport just to keep that fitness. And then one or two days a week of speed, speed climbing. And we kind of just tried to maintain that slash maybe build it a little bit in preparation for the world championships. After that, take a little rest and then get back into the climbing training for, for Toulouse, uh, which was a couple months later. And the big difference between that and my training for the Olympics was we had so much more time and we knew exactly when, when the date was, mm. or we thought we knew <laughs> after it got postponed. Yeah. Um, then we really had a lot of time and we really knew what we were doing. So my training for that started, I think December with like weightlifting and cardio and uh, climbing almost as a secondary focus. And mm. we did that for a couple months and I felt huge gains from that base building block, uh, which I hadn't really done a legitimate base building weightlifting included training cycle. And I think that that just set me up for success early on in the bouldering world cup season. I think I still need to make improvements in how I maintain that strength throughout the season. Uh, maybe with some more lightweight lifting mixed in there, or maybe just more intense climbing training sessions mixed in between the comps. Um, it's scary to go hard. Mm uh, on, on your training mid season, because you don't want to be tired for the competitions, but. And for people listening, how far apart are they typically? Is it like every other, every weekend, every other weekend? Typically they are, I'd say three to four weeks apart. Okay. Um, sometimes they kind of stack up to be like every weekend or every other weekend. Um, there's three lead competitions that are always back to back to back weekends mm. in Europe. So, but that's pretty, uh, unusual. Okay. Yeah. I imagine. So that makes sense. So leading up to the Olympics, you have this target date and you can do this longer kind of periodized training block. And then, you know, in a, in a normal season, you're kind of in this like maintenance, trying to stay strong, maybe build a little bit, but just be kind of ready to, to go hard uh, for mm -hmm. every single competition that pops up. Were you training for the Olympics kind of to the exclusion of other competitions as you got closer to it? Like were you, was your priority so on that date that you were maybe, maybe doing things that weren't ideal for, for those kind of shorter term competitions that popped up? For sure. Um, it was kind of, it was a big debate among us on the U S team. And I sensed that it was a big debate for every Olympic athlete, how many lead world cups to do before resting and going home and, trying to prepare for the travel to Tokyo. Um, we ended up doing two, or I ended up doing two lead world cups. Some of our, like, I think Brooke only did the one that was in Innsbruck, which was actually bouldering and lead. And then, I mean, Alberto did, I think all of the lead world cups and then had maybe like a week at home and then went to Tokyo. So wow. yeah, pretty crazy. So I, I sacrificed my, 
lead competition experience and performance on, I think, two or three events in order to give myself more time to prepare. Mm, okay. Okay, I want to ask you more about the Olympic experience itself um, and the training leading up to it. Can you tell me about training in the sauna at the <laughs> at the training center? I know it yeah. wasn't an actual sauna, but this just, it just blew my mind. It's brilliant. It makes perfect sense, but it's just it sounds like the most heinous like Bikram climbing session I can possibly imagine. So, what were you doing to prepare specifically for being in the Tokyo climate? So. Josh and Zach, they built us a heat and humidity trainer, a chamber, um, big enough to put two grasshopper boards in. And one of them was like the full grasshopper set. One of them was like fiberglass volumes. Oh. Yeah. And we pretty much <laughs> uh, turned on as many heaters as we could find and as many humidifiers as we could find. And we put on sweatpants and we put on long sleeve shirts. And me, Kyra, and Chris Cosner were all kind of in it together, which was super nice. It would have been hell to do alone, but it was kind of like a fun supper session to do with friends. Who was Chris? What was what was oh, he Chris doing Cosner. in there? Yeah. He's a South African Olympian. Okay. Climbing. Okay. Yeah. Got it. But he was training in Salt Lake for months before the games with us. Okay. So we would uh, warm up, you know, by jumping on the the bike that has also the hand pedals okay so like the air just go hard go hard for a minute get our heart rate up get our body sweating and then we try to do a circuit uh like a 30 to 40 move circuit kind of starting on the fiberglass going into the grasshopper holds which are a little more fingery going back to the fiberglass once we're super sweaty and just learning <laughs> learning to stay calm when your body is that hot and sweating that much. And then also learning like, when is it worth it to try to get a full hand of chalk? If you're just going to sweat through it, is it maybe huh. better to just pat your hand on your legs and try to get all the moisture off and, and then move quickly over the next couple holds. And by the time we jump down off the wall, you know, we'd be sweating from our calves and <laughs> we'd, we'd be using like liquid chalk. So we'd have all this nasty gunk just, on the back of our hands. It was, it was really a gross experience. And then we'd measure our, our weight before the, before we trained. And then we'd measure after to try to see how much water weight we would lose. And we were always trying to drink the perfect amount of water to keep our weight the same before and after. Wow. Oh my gosh. How much would you lose in a session in there? Um, I think I lost like a half a pound, but I was also drinking maybe 16 ounces of water. Okay. Oh my gosh. That sounds like my nightmare, dude. You're going to be so yeah. ready to go crush in like the Southeast in the summer or something. I don't know. I, <laughs> I hope this skill set serves you in the rest of your climbing. Do you have any like, any just like simple practical that the deciding whether or not to chalk up thing is very interesting, but I'm curious, do yeah. you have any like specific tips or, or little tricks that you learned from that that apply to hot weather climbing like specific brands of chalk or i don't know um skin products or anything like that uh no i'm i'm all natural on the skin really um mm -hmm. i would use no, like, like salves or balms or anything uh-huh okay yeah I'm, I'm pretty blessed with the skin quality okay 
Um, we would use like liquid chalk. I usually use just the Petzl power crunch chalk. And, uh, I don't know, sometimes, sometimes, like I said, it works if you're not that sweaty, but if you're like, if you're gushing and you can like feel your heart rate, you can feel your heartbeat in your head. Usually a chalk up is just going to like waste time. And sometimes it's better to just tap your pen. Um, but you know, it, it just teaches you to get used to that really like nerve wracking feeling of being that hot and being, having a heart rate that high. And then you're just eventually with some practice, you learn to kind of ignore it or just be okay with it. And you can still climb pretty well. Okay. This is going to be very basic context for most of the people listening, but for anyone who's just tuning in and and just kind of exploring their curiosity about climbing, we're very often seeking autumn, you know, like you want nice, cool temperatures, uh, you don't want to sweat. That makes it harder to hold on to things. In Tokyo, everyone knew that it was going to be outside. It was going to be very hot and humid. And the climbers were just going to have to deal with that as as the best they could. Um, I'm curious, how similar was that feeling in the training sauna? How similar was that to the actual experience in Tokyo? For the most part, Tokyo was surprisingly easy to deal with. Um, there was only one moment during the whole competition where I felt like I was back in that training sauna. And that was, <laughs> and that was during the bouldering qualifications. Okay. Um, luckily they waited for evening for both of our, both of our rounds and that cooled off the air temperature quite a bit. But in that bouldering qualification round, it was four boulders and five minutes on five minutes off. And the first boulder, you know, you, you come out of isolation and you're like pretty chill. You're not, you're not that hot. But then after the first boulder, your, your heart rate's elevated and you're hot and you're like, we put on these like ice vests to keep our core body temperature down. We stood in front of these, they had these like machines just blowing cold air. Um, even though it wasn't like an enclosed space. So you just stand next to it to try to cool down. And that kind of worked and you'd come out to the second boulder, not really feeling that sweaty. Mm. Third boulder, you are just pouring sweat. Fourth boulder, you are absolutely pouring sweat. And it was just impossible to keep our core temperature down over the course of that, you know, 40 to 50 minutes. So yeah, that was, that was the, the time when the sauna really paid off. And did it make the difference? Um, I remember, I remember having one thought of, man, this sucks, but it's exactly like the sauna. So you know what to do. You, the more, the more time you waste thinking about how much this sucks, uh, the less energy you have to spend figuring out this boulder mm. and everybody's in the same boat. Mm. Fascinating, man. <clears throat> I would love to hear just simply what did it feel like going to Tokyo? I imagine that you've you've built it up, you've visualized the experience, you've imagined what it might be. And then there's all these weird layers to it. You know, COVID's happening. It's not the Olympics that we've watched on TV since we were kids. Um, mm-hmm. But maybe it still is. Maybe it still has that energy. I just, I would love to hear you describe the experience of, of finally getting on the plane and going over there. Getting on the plane with the team 
it was it was just super exciting it, it I, th- I think all of us were just happy that we had finally actually made it to the event you know without injury and without losing our minds um, <laughs> we were just happy to be there without dying of heat exhaustion in the sauna yeah and it was really cool to see all of the time and and money and and preparation that goes into the olympics all of the venues the olympic village all the food they have to prepare for you know thousands of athletes and all of the security precautions that they have to use and a lot of those were due to the covid situation it felt like our olympic experience was pretty dictated by covid for the most part but yeah still i think we were just we were just happy and nervous and just ready to get get to the competition mm-hmm. in the in we had a few days to prepare to practice on the competition wall they set us some preparation routes and boulders and we had a chance to run on the speed wall a few times for like three or four days before the comp and it seemed to me like everybody uh, across all nations was the most nervous during those days hmm. um i bet oh my god yeah but yeah it was cool everybody was everybody was like awestruck to be in the Olympic venue and to, to really feel, feel what it was like. Mm. And you're finally getting to know the rest of the, the American team, uh, being over there. Did you have a chance to, to get to know a lot of the other athletes? Were you guys talking to one another in the days leading up to the actual competition? Not so much. Um, you know, I have, I have a few people that I've been competing with for many years on the international circuit and, it's always good to see them and kind of catch up and, and it was nice to session with them actually before the competition. Um, but the Olympic, I don't know, for one reason or another, whether it was the Olympics or whether it was just everybody was nervous. Uh, most people kind of stuck to their, to their teams and to their countries. And, um, yeah. I would love to hear about the moment when you realized that you made finals. It sounds like it sounds like you didn't know right away or thought you had missed it and thought your Olympics was over. Can you can you tell me about that? Yeah. Um so after speed and after bouldering in the qualifications, we all go back to isolation and I am just feeling bummed. Um I feel like I should have topped one more boulder than I did maybe two more boulders than I did. And I felt like I, I kind of dropped, missed the, missed my chance because I knew that lead wasn't my specialty and I knew that I was really far behind. So it was actually really hard for me to come to terms with not making finals and still giving my best lead performance. Mm. Um, I just, I really felt done. Um, but luckily we had enough time in isolation before lead started for me to work through that and refine just a little bit of psych. You know, we've been preparing for more than a year just for this competition. And I can dedicate 
another 30 minutes to being in the zone. Mm. And I had a fantastic lead climb. Um, we get, we went out and we read the route and I put more effort than I ever have into memorizing the route so that when I got back into isolation, I was able to run through it and visualize all the sections that I was like worried about. And I, I was like, okay, foot, you know, hips are going to be feeling a little weird, but you just got to pull into this one. Then a wow. little breath. It was like, it was everything that I could do to make it the most realistic visualization. And then I got on the route and I climbed very fast, very smooth and without hesitation. And I was breathing so heavy, like more heavy than I can ever remember. And I think that that helped me like dissipate some of the stress. And was that intentional? Did you start the route really forcefully breathing or did that just, just happen on its own? It just happened. And I noticed that when I'm really focused and really climbing well, my breathing is, is not forced, but it is very deep and it follows the movement. Mm. So I came down from that lead climb and I was super happy with how I had climbed in the lead round at least. And that was, that was enough for me. Um, I went and talked to some reporters and I said, you know, it was fun, but (laughs) I, I'm happy to just be done and be able to relax now. And I think when I finished my score, put me in like 15th or something out of 20. And I didn't really realize how much your score can change as more people compete. Mm. So I, I come back and I find my team and I sit down um, and I'm maybe in 12th at that point. And I called my girlfriend, Jane, and she was with some of my roommates and we were talking, you know, they were consoling me. And then all of a sudden she's like, well, Charlie just did the math. And, uh, he says that you're probably going to make finals. And I was like, no, <laughs> what, what is he talking about? Like I'm, I'm in 12th right now. Uh, I'd need to bump up like so many spots and we have the best lead climbers coming out next. And she's like, okay, yeah, I don't know. Maybe you're right. And then we watched the next couple climbers and, uh, with every climber, my score is just bumping up one by one by one. And finally, I think we had like four climbers left and Charlie says, well, you know, the Olympic, the guys who are commentating this live stream, uh, they just said that you are qualified. Like no matter what the last couple climbers do, you will, you will go to finals. And I still was like, that's wrong because I'm still, <laughs> I'm still intent. Like I can't actually believe that. Hmm. Um, I was just, I was really not in the mood to get my hopes up and then get them crushed again. Oh, wow. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was resisting. Um, and then when everybody was done and my score was an eight, yeah, it was, it was an incredible feeling. I was, I was just laughing and psyched on the phone with Jane and all the roommates, um, I hung up and I called my parents. Uh, they were just crying and so proud of me. And that was an amazing feeling to hear them and to know that they probably went through the same process as I did. Uh, mm-hmm. It was like, I don't know. We knew that Colin was in 
Colin was in, in like third or something. He had performed so well and I was super happy for him. But then to, to also make it alongside him, it was like the whole team, my whole support system at home. Everybody knew that that was my goal for the competition to make finals. Mm. And we knew that it was a, a lofty goal as well. So Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> so Colin Duffy, uh, Nathaniel's American teammate for people listening, also went to finals. Um, I would love to hear what happens next. Are you just on top of the, the world and just elated to be in finals? Or or does that like killer instinct kick in and you're like, okay, now I'm gunning for the podium? You know, like what, what happens in your mindset next when you're going into finals? So I think for the rest of that day, I was just elated just happy to be happy to have achieved what i wanted to and maybe by that night or maybe by the next morning i started to reconsider my goals and uh all of a sudden i was thinking you know it's nice that you made finals but now that you're here what are you going to do and i decided that i wanted to do well i wanted to i wanted to podium and I wanted to do whatever I could to make that happen. And we watched the girls and Brooke crushed it. Kyra was so close to finals. It was, uh, it was a melancholy night, mm. but yeah, going into finals, I think I had a nice balance between knowing that my goal had been achieved, but also knowing that more was possible mm. and But I didn't really, uh, you know, I had no idea how it would turn out. Of course. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like the same thing happened again. You know, you're you're getting, you're maybe done or you're going into the lead final and just such a strange format in that like no one really knew where they stood until everything was said and done. Like literally as Jakob is climbing up the wall, he was the final climber to to do the lead climb people's scores are just jumping all over the place. It's mm-hmm. just so exciting and thrilling and, and wild to, to watch that. Um, how did finals go for you? Finals went pretty well. My speed, there were maybe two things that I regretted, but other than that, I got a PR. I feel like that's amazing. One. Like the chances oh, yeah. of PRing at the Olympics, like who does well, that? I mean, that's so amazing. I mean, how many thousands of times have you have you done that route? Right, uh, quite a quite a few. But in competition, you just get. It, I honestly remember saying to my coach, "Man, I don't know where this leg power is coming from, but it feels like my hands can't even keep up. I'm just <laughs> pushing myself up the wall faster than I'm used to." Wow. And it's just the cycle of the competition. And I think for the speed climbers, I don't think, met, I think maybe a few of them got a PR because they are way more experienced and they've had way more mm. successful competition runs. But for most of the non-speed climbers, I think we were PRing mm. actually. It was just like, it was something that we had practiced, but that we hadn't had that much adrenaline behind. So it was like the perfect recipe for the PR. Mm. anyway i i was happy with how i speed climbed um a little bit bummed with my ranking but 
I, I pretty quickly changed my focus into bouldering and I tried to treat the bouldering round as if I were at a bouldering world cup final. And as if I were trying to win that bouldering world cup final. Does that just mean give it everything and not hold back for, for the lead climbing to come? Is that kind of what you mean by that? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was not thinking about the next two disciplines. I was putting myself in a bouldering world cup final. And I was telling myself that I have the capability of winning if the boulders suit me and if I climb really well. And that got me super excited and put me in the zone. And I was the first one to flash the first boulder. And I love being one of the first people to climb in a final because you can just, you can put the pressure on the other competitors and very rarely do their performances actually put pressure on you. Mm. Um, second boulder, I was super hyped to be able to do it. Uh, I felt like it was a difficult boulder, but I felt like other people were going to do it. It seemed very Tomoa style. It didn't seem Adam style, but he is also a big guy. And I thought that he could possibly do it. After everybody competed on the second boulder, I realized that I was in first and I had a lot of pressure going on to the third boulder. And luckily it was just a, <laughs> a whack boulder that nobody could, that we all got to the same spot on. And, uh, yeah, it is unfortunate for every other aspect. It is unfortunate for every other climber in the world that the bouldering round was not that much fun to watch, but it worked, worked out in my favor. <laughs> <laughs> was the, the third one was the, the sun the yellow holes the sun, on the volumes. Yeah. 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 And it turned out there was just different beta that we, we didn't even consider that mm. was intended by the root setters. When do you find that out? Is that just come to you like trickle through hearsay later on? How, how do you learn that? Yeah. Um, I think Josh had talked to one of the root setters mm -hmm. after the competition. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I had, I had done what I, had really wanted to do. I had achieved this amazing goal of winning the bouldering round at the Olympics. And that was an amazing feeling for me because I looked up to so many of those other athletes and I knew that they were fantastic boulders mm. and to prove that I could beat them. Um, it meant a lot to me. And then in the context of the Olympics, all of a sudden I was feeling really nervous because to have a first place in a discipline, it means that you are a very strong, almost guaranteed medal contention. And before the speed, before the bouldering round, I was like, man, my speed performance was so poor. All I want to do is perform well in this bouldering round and it'll be enough for me in this finals. And then after the bouldering round, I'm thinking about, man, what if I win gold? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was fighting and trying, trying not to let that thought be the, uh, dominating thought. Mm. Um, and I was mildly successful. I think that I climbed the finals route. Well, I knew I was very tired. I knew that everybody else was very tired and that we'd get pumped a little bit sooner than we had expected to. Can you remind us, is this all happening in the same day, speed bouldering and then lead? Yep. 
God, that's so much rock climbing. That's wild. A lot of rock climbing, a lot of time to be in isolation. Um, a lot of thought about, you know, how much should I eat? How much should I drink? Mm. I need to be fueled, but I don't want to eat too much and be heavy. Yeah. It, it, it's definitely a mental endurance challenge. Mm. Um, and it's something that we prepared for, for the competition as well, which I can talk about in a little bit, but the lead route was a lot harder than the qualification lead route, which was okay. I, I got pumped and I screamed and I fought through just a few more moves and I fell making good progress to the next hold. And, and I felt satisfied. Mm. I felt happy. I felt like I had, uh, I had given everything that I could to that, to the Olympics, which was this massive goal of mine for so many years. And it was, uh, it was an incredible feeling of, of being finished mm. and being happy with, with how it ended up. Did you know where you stood at that, at that moment? Okay. No. Um, I heard, I heard Kyra scream from the crowd, uh, like really scream, which told me <laughs> that things were good. Uh -huh. Um, <laughs> and I got back and I got into the chair and I saw that my lead score was better than Mikel's and was better than Tomoa's, which I also knew was really good because we were like really close in scores. So I think at that point I was thinking I'm definitely on the podium. Mm. Just depends on where I end up. And I was so, cons I was so consumed with watching those scores change as more people climbed that I eventually became frustrated with myself because I was like, I missed like one of the climbers. I forget who it was, but they fell when I was looking at the score and I was like, Oh man, what happened? What am I doing? I'm, I'm looking at a screen right now mm. when the best climbers in the world are, are putting their heart and soul into this final performance. Um, my yeah. priorities are all wrong. And from then I was just, watching the climbers and cheering them. And, uh, I think when we were watching Jakob, we didn't realize how much his score could affect the performance. But after talking to Adam, he was like, man, I, I did as best I could on that route. And if anybody gets past the move that I fell on, I'm going to be incredibly impressed. And Jakob just hikes the route. Yeah, and he it did. Oh, it was so sick. It gave me goosebumps. He is a legend of the sport. He's been climbing in competition for probably more than a decade, multiple time world champion. We knew that he was one of the best lead climbers in the world, but in my mind, I felt like Adam was just doing so well. And so to see him walk away with a first in lead, I was super happy for him. Mm. And then of course, once everybody's done climbing, we check the scores and we're all kind of mind blown at how it ended up. Yeah. <laughs> I love, we talked about this a few weeks ago. I loved hearing you talk about watching Jakob because I mean, I don't know. I just imagine, I try to imagine myself sitting there and I just, I just can't even guess what emotions would be flooding through me. Right. Like you, you want to be, I imagine you are sitting there wanting to be nothing but supportive and happy and excited for this other 
rock climber who's just climbing this hard route and you have you have the direct experience of how hard it is and you're just watching this world-class performance best performance in the world right in front of your eyes i imagine that's just amazing but then you know tangled in that is his performance is directly affecting your result and i just i just can't imagine what that feels like yeah. What was it like watching him climb? Was it just exciting? Was it just a, a messy, turbulent roller coaster? What did it feel like? I think it was mostly, I was just thinking, wow, what a, what a perfect end to the final at the Olympics. Like mm. the route is going to end up being a perfect set where perfect distribution for all the athletes and one top, uh, like what a, what an amazing cherry on top for the Olympic viewing experience. Mm. Also, when I saw him beat Adam's high point, I knew that things were going to change. And that was exciting. Um, because I think it, I, I think I knew it would work in my favor, but those kind of thoughts I try to not focus on because I would rather focus on supporting Jakob. It was also beautiful because we saw him, walk out from isolation and we had been talking to him in isolation as well. And we knew that he was not happy with how he performed and he had a choice. He, he could either, he could either just get through it, finish the competition and, and be done, or he could give it everything on the lead performance. And I think by the time he got to the third or fourth bolt, I could tell that he was climbing in, in a different zone mm. and that he had made the right choice. And he didn't know that he had any contention for a medal. I don't think, at least that's the impression that I got. So then when he came down and he was celebrating, it was pretty cool. <laughs> Amazing to hear that. I'm going to mix in some questions from listeners. I got so many questions for you. I think more than I've ever gotten for, for a podcast guest. Um, so thank you everyone, all the patrons who submitted questions. I, we're definitely not going to get to all of them. Hopefully we've covered some of them in this conversation. Um, but this one feels timely and I'm going to ask it. This is from Tyler. Tyler asks, after all was said and done, what did you think about the Olympic format? It also looked like you were the first person to let Alberto know he won. Did you realize you had silver immediately as well? Yeah. Um, after Jakob finished climbing, uh, I checked the scores. I was sitting right next to Alberto and I saw, I saw first, second, third, and I was mostly like, holy shit, <laughs> Alberto, you won. And <laughs> I, I could tell that he was also in, in awe. And I kind of just, you know, I gave him a pat on the back. I was like, it's really happening, man. Fucking congratulations. And then, you know, the same thing with Jakob. The Olympic format, you know, it's it's something that we've had many years to come to terms with. And as a competitor, I understand all the reasoning behind doing the Olympic format as, as it was. At first, the Olympic committee wanted climbing to just be speed climbing because it was the most in line with their other Olympic disciplines. Mm. But IFSC said, no chance. If you only give us one medal, we are not going to represent climbing with speed climbing. We're going to find another way. And so that other way that they found was to combine all three disciplines, which 
you know, obviously wasn't anybody's first choice, uh, especially not the speed climbers. But over the course of the next four years, I think that all of us non-speed climbers were surprised to find how satisfying training speed can be and just how fun it can be to like watch your progression change by very uh, measurable numbers. Mm. So, yeah, I think it was nobody's first choice, but 100% the best choice for an Olympic format. Awesome. To fill in a little bit for people that aren't, that haven't kind of followed this and aren't as familiar, uh, it's, you know, climbing does have this longer competition legacy and it's, it's very common that boulderers will also lead climb and vice versa. Those are similar enough that a lot of people do both. And then speed climbing is, is really this separate thing. And there are these amazing speed specialists who focus on that, uh, to the exclusion of more difficult climbing and bouldering and, and lead climbing. So some of the speed climbers, some of the best in the world kind of got hosed a little bit with the, with the format, um, which is what Nathaniel was referring to where they just haven't practiced the bouldering and the lead as much. Um, and then it was kind of up to the, the boulderers and the, and the lead climbers to take on this new discipline that many of them hadn't really done before, uh, before they knew it was going to be in the Olympics. Had you speed climbed much at all before the Olympics came on your radar? A little bit. Um, I had done maybe one or two seasons in, in the youth category. So now, you know, for the 2024 Olympics, we already know that the format is changing and they're going to separate those out. Are you going to continue speed climbing? You know, I told myself that I wanted to get a sub six time and I knew that it's, it's possible, um, with a little bit more training, but I haven't touched a speed wall since the Olympics. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> at this point, um, I probably won't touch a speed wall again for a long time. Okay. <laughs> How close did you get to that time? What was your, what was your PR? My PR was 6.21. Okay. That's pretty damn um, close to that goal. That's awesome. Kind of close. Um, I don't think, I don't think I could have done it at the Olympics with, okay. with how much I had prepared. I think it would take a full another training cycle to kind of get consistent in the six, two range. And then you just have one really good, really psyched run mm. where everything comes together and you can get a sub six. Mm. Okay. I want to, I want to move on to some of these other questions, but first I have to ask you one more thing about the Olympics and realizing that you achieved the silver, um, how that felt, all those sorts of things. Can you tell me about your great aunt? Mm, yeah. Aunt Armida. <laughs> aunt Armida. Tell me about her. Yeah. So she's my, my mom's aunt and my mom's side of the family is uh, Mexican. And she, I got a lot of letters um, in my dorm room at the Olympic village from like friends, family, old friends, uh, extended family. And one of those letters was, was from Aunt Armida, great Aunt Armida. She sent me some, some words of encouragement, but she also sent me these old photos of her when she was young and of her brothers and of her parents. And it was really cool to see 
my ancestors and to see these people that I had no connection with other than that they were family that I had never met. And uh, it kind of made me feel like, I don't know, I, I wanted to make them proud. Um, even though they, they had no idea, they probably weren't even alive still some of her brothers um and then after the competition you know she's very happy to hear about my result and she sends my mom an email to pass on to me and she said you've brought great honor to our family which is not something that is generally said in western culture but it's something that really struck a chord with me um it was like you know, a whole line of ancestry is what I'm representing. And through all of their collective choices, I've been able to achieve a medal at the Olympics, which would make any family proud. So mm. it was just something, probably something that she, she didn't know how much uh, it would connect with me, but I really appreciated it. Wow. I want to read two Instagram posts from you. This is directly following the Olympics and standing on the podium. I think your first uh, post after, after standing on the podium, you wrote, I've tried to collect my thoughts and they just keep running away, but I think reality did set in a bit today. For now, I'll just say that it's an honor to be a part of climbing's history in this way. More to come if I can ever get myself to think straight again. <laughs> <laughs> and a picture of you guys standing on the podium together. I loved that. And then you did collect your thoughts and you had this beautiful post that I want to read from, I think, just a day or two later. And you wrote, the voices around us will eventually leave their impression on our inner voice. I am so lucky to have people in my life that build me up and oftentimes believe in me more than I believe in myself. So when it was time to compete on the biggest stage, my inner voice told me that it was time to believe. And I honestly still can't believe it happened. In the beginning of 2019, it was estimated that the US had a 0.01% chance of earning a medal in climbing. I remember silently agreeing, hoping the US could qualify one or two athletes for the games. And then we were one of the few countries to qualify four athletes, a full team. Then in 2021, the U.S. started collecting medals at World Cups like never before, and we sent three athletes to the Olympic finals. Now we're bringing home a medal. If you're a comp climber of any age in the U.S. and that doesn't fill you with pride, I don't know what will. And then you wrote, thank you to everyone who played a part in this Olympic story. We did it, baby. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just amazing, man. I, I had, it's funny to say this, I don't know why this is, but I had never really thought about what it meant, what it must mean to climbing, what it must mean to, to us climbing for you to do what you did. When did that sink in for you? And, and how does that feel? That sunk in, um, about 36 hours after taking silver. I was listening to, I'm going to plug another podcast. <laughs> Please. I was listening to uh, the Climbing Gold episode. I forget exactly what it's titled, but it's something about like preparing for the Olympics. 
or something about USA climbing. And Meg Coyne, she talks, she tells about that story of getting the 0.01% chance from the U.S. Olympic Committee. And that moment was when I remembered the journey of having a hard time, having little faith in my own abilities and in the abilities of other U.S. competitors and then through hard work and through dedication from us athletes and from our coaches and from belief first in our coaches and then belief in myself, it was just, it was a beautiful story that I had forgotten. Mm. And when it all set in, I just, I broke down in tears and that was, uh, I think that was, that was the first time that I actually cried since, uh, getting my medal. So yeah, shout out to Meg Coyne for telling that story on climbing gold or else I maybe never would have realized what it meant to me to get a silver. Wow. What has the response been like from other people? Are people responding to that uniquely inspiring achievement that that you've shown us is possible? Are you are you getting feedback from people, from other you know American competitors, from young competitors, anything like that? I'm getting a lot of people telling me that that it was inspiring to watch the Olympics. You know, I'm getting a lot of people saying that they loved watching me perform and they couldn't be happier for me. But I think that that, that full story will only connect with and only be known by a niche community of competition climbers. And I think that that's okay because, Mm. you know, it's, it's most powerful to those people that care a lot about competition climbing Mm. uh, from a U.S. perspective, especially. So. And finally about the Olympics, does it feel like the pinnacle? Like, does it feel like the pinnacle of your personal climbing career thus far to have that silver? How does it stack up against everything else? Because you have, God, your your list of achievements is very long <laughs> and, and broad. And it spans from, you know, bouldering nationals to, to World Cup medals to V16 first ascents to climbing 515. You've done a lot of different things. So how does this one mm-hmm. stack up? this is definitely the the biggest achievement in my eyes and it's this i think um it's the second perspective changing event to happen in my climbing career where it really makes me reevaluate my self belief and my goals the first event was getting the first ascent of grand illusion mm. it it made me realize that my ability outdoors was a lot higher than, than I initially thought. And that was, that was perspective changing, life changing. And now this, you know, I've, I've, I've always been aware that I'm able to pull out clutch performances, but to do it at the Olympics was just such a point of proof for me that, uh, that I don't think I'll ever, treat competition the same like I really I've always wanted to be one of the best but I've never truly believed that I was one of the best 
Mm. And I don't know if I believe that I am yet one of the best, but I believe I can be. Like truly like, yeah, I believe that I can be. I have goosebumps right now. I don't even know why. <laughs> oh, that's awesome to hear that. I, I have to ask, I, I, I still want to get to some of these other questions from people, but um, I just have to follow this thread. And that's how this goes. It's just a conversation. Um, that first experience with Grand Illusion, that's such a different experience than winning a silver at the Olympics. And I'm curious how you hold those two things moving forward and how you hold those things as you as you imagine your future in climbing. Do you have, did, did Grand Illusion bring more thoughts about outdoor climbing and first ascents and elite level bouldering and cutting edge and things like that? Or yeah, it, I guess, where is your drive these days when you think about balancing competition goals, you know, the Olympics 2024, and then this whole world of hard boulders and hard rock climbs outdoors? Yeah. Um, I think even after Grand Illusion, it made me realize that that some of the hardest things in the world were possible for me. And that was that was very inspiring. And it made me kind of cement some of these pipe dreams into real goals of things that I want to climb in the future. But, you know, in my heart, I'm still a competition climber. And I think that those outdoor goals will always revolve around my competition season, at least until I, until I retire from competition. Mm. And then kind of having this Olympic achievement, it gives me time and, and validation to step away for a while from competition and focus on outdoor climbing because it's like, I, I have nothing more to prove for, for a little while. Mm. I got quite a few questions about basically how you balance outdoor training and or training for outdoor projects versus training for competitions. Do you do any targeted training for outdoor projects or have you as these goals and routes have kind of like, you know, um, as you've stumbled into them, I guess, along your yeah. path? <laughs> or do you just train for, for World Cups and then that translates to the rock? I've never done any like, specific training for outdoor goals i've always kind of trained like on the grand illusion i trained for the grand illusion by climbing on the grand illusion which mm. is and it's such a unique boulder in that sense that you can actually just do big links in that roof and it will it'll give, give you a full body fatigue and you'll come back stronger the next day i guess maybe the only exception is currently i'm training a lot of sport climbing and I think the end goal is to to do well in the lead World Cup season, but that's still months and months and months away. So the goal right now is to build enough fitness to have a really good trip to Red Rock or to, I, I keep saying Red Rocks, to uh, Red River Gorge and then just kind of pursue some some outdoor sport climbing goals, see if I can better that to then translate into competition performance. And does that translate well? Or are those, are those two goals aligned enough that just, you know, training for the red translates to training for world cups or, or are they different? I think they, I think they do align with the right balance. 
you know, I don't think anybody's ever been able to train for World Cup routes or boulders by only climbing outside. Mm. But for me, and I think because I have less experience and more to learn from outdoor climbing, just a little bit of it at the beginning of the season, it really gets my motivation up. It kind of, it's always teaching me more about how to climb and how to sport climb well. And I think that I'm hoping that a good outdoor season can be the base for a good lead season, but I'm going to be spending, you know, many months training indoors for the lead comms. Mm, okay. I'll fill in a little context for people that haven't seen it. Uh, the Grand Illusion is a V16, a really long roof. Was it like 23 moves or something like that? Something like that. Um, in, is that in Little Cottonwood Canyon? It's this long roof. Uh, Nathaniel did the first ascent. Was it last year? Was it last year? <laughs> yeah, I think I think it was. <laughs> I should know. But anyway, it, there's a really cool, uh, beautifully filmed and edited video about the first ascent. And I'll link to that in the show notes for people that want to watch it. But just one of the coolest climbs I've ever seen. Uh, not even in person, just from the video. It looks amazing. Uh, I'm going to throw in a question from Nick. Nick asks... Uh, being a Tucson local, it was really cool to watch the Dry Canyon series of videos a couple years back. Do you have any plans to come back to work on the Lee Majors extension? It's a good question. Um, I have uh, unsolidified plans at the moment. I'm thinking of going and checking out uh, with Sean Bailey, actually. Uh, get a real lead climber's perspective on, <laughs> on if it could go or not. And then also Daniel... Daniel Woods has expressed interest in checking it out because he's been on a sport climbing kick. And I think it'd be super valuable to have him there because there's still a boulder on the extension that I, I didn't, I wasn't able to put together. Mm. So yeah, it's uh it's not a guaranteed, but it's a strong possibility. I'll be back. Is it even possible to guess at the grade, given that there's a boulder on there that you haven't figured out? Do you have any? Yeah, guess? I did. I did make a guess that it's B13 boulder. Okay. Yeah. And what would that mean for the for the extension? Because the Lee Majors is a 9A, 14D, is that right? Yeah, I think with better beta, it's been solidified more at 14C. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, but off the chains, I think the chains is a decent rest, but it's like, it's very steep. You're on kind of like a flat block, not great feet. So not a very good recovery before launching into an extended, maybe V9, uh, 10 or so moves to like a big risky throw to a decent shakeout. I think you'll be able to get probably 75% back, maybe 50%, probably more like 75. And then straight into this unknown b13 boulder um, so i think yeah it could be mid 515 could be one of the hardest routes in america wow but who knows if it goes who knows who knows if a hold will break mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i'm not trying to get too excited <laughs> yeah 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 it, it does feel like a miracle when you when you actually do find something that hard that that works <laughs> yeah <laughs> that that line is very thin between doable and um really hard and you know it doesn't just break and totally. whatever else cool well i'm excited to to follow along with that 
Um, this question, <laughs> I liked this question. This one's from Timothy. Timothy writes, watching Nathaniel Climb is like watching poetry in motion. Reminds me of watching Lonnie Kalk. Considering his mental game is great, does he ever see himself getting into highball bouldering or traditional or bigger wall climbing? I feel like with his talent and mental strength, he could change the game as we know it. Does it intrigue him at all? Well, that's a super, that's a super kind compliment, Timothy. Thank you. <laughs> um, I have done some highball bouldering and I do enjoy it. I feel like I do have a pretty good head when I'm high up above the, the mats. Traditional big wall climbing does intrigue me. I feel like there's so much to learn there. Um, I'm just trying to find the right time to, to dedicate enough effort and time to it to really learn it. I think it's in my future, but I just don't know when mm. I don't, I don't think, I don't think it would become something that I dedicate enough or I'm even, even capable of changing the quote unquote, changing the game. Mm. Do you think you'll retire from competition at some point? I've kind of gone back and forth in my head. Um, on the one hand, I do know that I'm going to get older and eventually I won't be performing as well as I can. But uh, it, it kind of sounds fun to just keep competing at whatever level I can when I can't qualify for World Cups, just keep competing at nationals. When I can't qualify for nationals, just keep competing at national cups. Although I'm realizing that my friends will age out and soon enough, I'll be that, that weird loner old guy at the competition. <laughs> so it'll, there'll probably come a day mm. when I hard stop. I actually don't know this. Like what, what is common in that a very elite competition circle? Is there kind of like an upper age range that seems to be the limit where most people move on and, shift their focus it's uh i mean i think Jakob is uh 30 or maybe even 31 or um he, he is an absolute legend who's been training almost like peak efficiency for the last five or so years i don't know so i feel like he's kind of a freak in that in that regard i feel like for most people i see them start to peter out and and they're results start to fall and their motivation starts to fall when they're around 27 or 28. Mm. And remind me, how old are you? 24. Okay. We got a few more tries. We, we got another Olympics at least. Yeah. <laughs> okay. God, there's so many good questions. We're just not going to get to all of them. I want to circle back to uh, some of the stuff I got from Kyle because some of these are really fun and made me really curious. Kyle suggested that I ask you about your relationship with root beer during your youth. <laughs> oh yeah. Tell me about root a, beer. <laughs> I've always been a big root beer fan. Um, as I've gotten older and traveled more, I've tried to, anytime I see a new root beer that looks good, I, I give it a taste test and, you know, I do consider, I do consider myself a bit of a connoisseur. Um, my favorite, my two favorites are, Henry Weinhardt's and Bundaberg root beer. Uh, Bundaberg, it just has this, maybe it's just ginger, but it has this aftertaste that at first I wasn't really into. And now it's like, I can't get enough of it. 
And then Henry <laughs> Weinhardt's just, uh, they use like cane sugar. It's like a really, it's just like, I think it's like your most classic pure root beer taste. So mm. It is still my favorite soda. <laughs> root beer is unique in that sense. I've never thought about that, but you know, people, a lot of people like Pepsi or maybe Coke and those are similar, but different or, you know, whatever Mountain Dew is their thing or Dr. Pepper is their thing. But root beer is unique in that there's a lot of different things all called root beer. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a broad umbrella of root beer, but I imagine there's a lot of variety there. I don't know if I could appreciate it. It's like, it's like fine wine. Like I think it's good, but don't ask me to tell you the difference between a $50 bottle and a $20 bottle, but yeah, yeah, I'll just, I'll, I guess I'll just take notes from you. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you. Do you like to drink it on its own? Do you combine it with any favorite food or anything? Or, or do you do the, do you ever do the root beer floats? Oh yeah. I mean, root beer floats are fantastic. I wouldn't do a root beer float with a really nice root beer. Um, <laughs> just because I'd rather save the taste alone, but. <laughs> yeah I, I, like a I usually, bartender i usually partake of a, of a root beer with uh with some food okay <laughs> <laughs> i want to ask you about um two of your other hobbies or pastimes i have this note from kyle it says kendama as training with a question yep. mark <laughs> I think a lot of people probably do know what kendama is, but I'm sure some don't. Can you describe what it is? And then I'd love to hear how it is training, if it, if it is. Yeah. So kendama. Um, oh, he's showing me. Amazing. It's, you uh, had it Japanese, within reach. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Japanese skill toy with uh, a handle and three little cups. Uh, Just a little a wooden block with a string attached to a ball. Yep. Okay. So with this, um, the most obvious thing to do is like catch the ball in all the different cups and spike it. So, okay. So there's a hole in the ball and a little spike on the, on the wooden stick. Yep. Okay. But like most things, it's more than meets the eye. You can, you can start to balance it in crazy places. Oh, hold it by the ball instead. And there's just such a high skill cap with it that um, it's it's got me pretty hooked for the last couple of years. So <laughs> I find it, I, I have a lot of fun just trying to improve with the Kendama, do harder tricks. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a fun pastime. It doesn't use, doesn't make you sore or anything. So I can do as much as I want and still climb well. Um, and I think it, it makes my focus a little better and it makes my hand-eye coordination a lot better. So, wow. Kendama is training. <laughs> That's so cool. Are you, I mean, I've seen people do this on the internet and I'll, I'll try to find and, and share some videos. Do you have any videos of you doing Kendama? Mm, not of me doing Kendama. Maybe I'll have you send me some of your favorites or people that you look up to on the internet that are just killing sure. it at Kendama. Sure. And I'll share those, but I've seen this a little bit. People are basically linking these combos, almost like skateboard sequences or skateboard tricks or things. And, you know, one thing to the next, to the next, to the next in these sequences. Do yeah. you have like a Kendama project right now? Um, no, I did have a long-term project, but I kind of, I never completed it and I fell off a bit. So it might be out of range right now. 
(laughs) (laughs) I'm just kind of trying to, I'm not working on any new tricks right now. I'm just trying to get better at the basics so I can just kind of flow around and, and have fun with it. Man, there's a real, uh, there's a real deeper lesson there in that last comment. Like you're that good at it and you're still just focusing on the basics, just trying to, trying to get better at those simple things. That's a lesson we could all, we could all learn. That's actually, uh, just too perfect of an opportunity not to mention, um, that I just filmed a, the first of a series of videos with grasshopper focusing on circuits that you can do on the board that can be treated as basics of climbing. So circuit one we just filmed i kind of break down like why how how to move best between the holds and uh i think we're going to try to make a few different circuits that people can practice and consider it the basics the building blocks something to do before every training session and treat as practice to perfect awesome so i'm I'm pretty excited about that awesome i'll keep my eye out for that i yeah, for people listening, I did an interview with Boone Speed, uh, one of the founders of Grasshopper, and we talked a lot about the boards. So they can, I'll link to that. They can check that out. Um, and yeah, and I'll keep my eye out for those videos and I'll be sure to share them when they come out. Is that something that you still benefit from in your yes. climbing? Do you still do? Okay. 100%. Tell me how you integrate that. Um, do you do stuff like that every day as part of your warm up? How do you mix that in? Not every day um, because I don't always have a Grasshopper board available. Um, most days at the training center, I will start the warm up with like a, some biking and then I'll hop on the grasshopper board. And what's crazy is the more that you focus on these basic movements, these literal V zero movements, the more you realize how actually difficult it is to do the move perfectly, to pull just the right amount with your feet, pull just the right amount with your hands, be super precise and fast and efficient with your hand and foot movements. I'm, I'm still getting better at these very basic moves every time I practice. That is fascinating. I I imagine, I I just imagine myself totally overthinking it. If I were to jump on a V zero and go, okay, I'm going to climb this perfectly. Like, what does that even mean on a V zero? Because I don't have to use momentum, you know, but I probably should use some momentum and what is the right amount? Like that just immediately gets very complicated. Well, for anybody curious, I recommend you follow Grasshopper Climbing. They'll be releasing the video. I'm not sure when, but um, I can break down the the basics. Uh, I broke it down into coordinating your legs and your arms to pull your center of gravity the right amount using your dead point to its max efficiency and precision and efficiency with your hands and feet. That's what in my mind makes a perfect movement. Cool. Can't wait to see it and share it. I was going to ask you this. If you had to rank yourself in climbing grades in climbing terms for us so we can understand how good are you at Kendama? V4. Yeah. I, I, I will blow like all, uh, humility aside, I will blow your mind with a Kendama if you've never seen it. Yeah. And I am V4. <laughs> People are insanely good. So. Wow. Are there like just a couple B17 Kendama? Do you call them players, practice practitioners? What do you? Kendama. I think they're players. 
Um, players. Okay. Yeah. I, it, Are there a couple like all-stars in the world that really stand out? Yeah. It's honestly, it's a younger sport than climbing is. So I don't know if they've, they've found their V17, but they certainly have some, <laughs> they have, I'll, I'll, I'll send you a, a video. This one guy, Bonzatron, he's just, he's like the, the Chris Sharma of climbing. He is paving the way, <laughs> always finding new tricks, always pushing himself. Um, wow. Yeah. I wonder if he ever has experienced like an, like do these people experience overuse injuries? <laughs> I bet, I bet you they're doing so many like weird wrist stuff. I bet you they get some knee problems or something. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This is also from Kyle. I also wanted to ask you about chess. Mm. How much do you play chess? Um, so currently I play chess maybe like once a week. Um, I, I, I enjoy like following along with the world championships and like high level chess players. I don't understand everything that goes on in their games, not even close, but, uh, it's really cool to me to see high end chess players perform. But my history with chess, I learned when I was really young, my dad taught me as soon as he thought I could understand how the pieces move. And I did some Utah state chess tournaments when I was in like third and fourth grade. And I took, I think fourth place was my best finish. So Utah isn't a super competitive chess state, but I was still really happy to have a big old trophy. Um, and pretty much since then I have stagnated, not gotten much better, but it's still good enough to, to play a good game with most people. Mm. <laughs> it's interesting. So there's such a common, such an obvious through line or, or, you know, thread that, that goes through all these things. And it seems like everything that you do has this element of intellectual stimulation and challenge and, you know, honing your focus and things like that. Is there another side to that coin? Like, do you, do you need to just veg out sometimes? And I'd love to hear what you do to just totally relax and recharge. Yeah. Um, yeah. With my like hobbies and activities, I do focus a lot on like perfection and, and doing them well. And I get a lot of enjoyment out of that, but also sometimes it, it makes me too much of a perfectionist in other areas of my life. And I, I actually talk about it a bit in a recent video that uh, Rise Brewing Company released, if you're curious to hear more. But my, um, I definitely veg out pretty hard. Um, <laughs> I have no problem wasting a day watching YouTube, playing video games, just sitting on the couch. And that's a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing because I, I have these really productive rest days. I fully recover, but it's a curse when I need to be climbing, but I'm just a little bit too comfortable sitting on the couch. So <laughs> <laughs> a structured training plan really helps me find the balance. Well, this has been amazing, man. I've taken so much of your time today and I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. It's been really fun and so interesting to talk to you and get a glimpse into this, what feels like a whole other world. Um, you know, I'm, I rock climb almost every day and it still just feels so otherworldly to me to hear about what you're doing and what your life looks like. Is there anything else that we, you know, flirted with, but didn't quite talk about anything else in, in terms of, um, preparation or, or things you're, 
excited about stories from the Olympics? Anything you want to share before, before we call this one close? Um, I guess my one, my one regret with uh, my Instagram post was that I didn't give special thanks to Josh and, and Zach uh, mm. and Meg who were the people that we traveled with to the world cups and the people that helped with like Meg helped with logistics. And she was always the one to contact when we had a problem. Josh and Zach wrote my training plan and they were sources of support when I needed it sources of knowledge when I was confused and Josh was a major a major voice that was telling me to believe when the time was right so mm. I guess better late than never but big thank you to to those three folks awesome and for people listening that's Josh Larson uh what are Zach and, and Meg's last names Zach DiCristino and Meg Coyne okay awesome Awesome. And we've talked a lot about goals in this conversation and you mentioned uh, fo this focus on lead climbing. What are you excited about right now? Uh, I'm excited about the Red River Gorge. Um, I think that style of, I've heard it's just endless, like open hand to close hand crimps and you just have to learn to, to keep going. So I think that that's one of my weaknesses in lead climbing and I'm excited super excited to just get there and suffer and get super pumped. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Do you have, do you have a list of routes all mapped out? Or are you just going to go and see what inspires you? How do you, how do you approach a trip like that? I've gotten a lot of recommendations, um, from I'm people. Sure. Uh, yeah, <laughs> all I've the hardest pretty, ones, probably <laughs> <laughs> hard ones and a lot of five twelves and five thirteens and even a few five elevens too. Like Sick. people really, yeah, they appreciate the full array of grades there. Um, so that'll be my guiding light. Um, of course, if I see something that I'm super inspired by while I'm there, I'll take some time to do it or try it. Nathaniel, I'd like to, I like to wrap up all my conversations with gratitude and ask my guests what they've been grateful for lately. Mm. Um, and you've talked a lot about gratitude throughout this conversation and you just gave that beautiful thank you to to josh and zach and meg but um anything else stand out right now anything else that that's been on your mind that you just are feeling especially grateful for um i have been feeling pretty grateful lately for the sport of climbing in general um pursuing more outdoor climbing it just re-cements how special our sport is and it's amazing how much my day can turn around after a long day at the crag. So I'm just happy to be with the sport that I am and in the community that I am. Amazing, man. That's a great note to leave people with, especially those that are with us for the first time. Um, thank you everyone for tuning in. Thank you to all the people that submitted questions. There were a lot of really good questions that we didn't get to and um, I'll be sure to hold on to them and maybe we can do another chat sometime. And, and tackle some more good questions. But Nathaniel, thank you so much. Really fun to get to talk to you and get to know you a little bit more. And uh, congratulations again, man. Yeah, thanks, dude. It's been, uh, it's felt like no time has passed at all. It was a good, good questions. Awesome. And I, I was, I was happy to work through some of my <laughs> thoughts around it. So. Awesome. That's, that's, 
That's good to hear. That that yeah, that's good to hear. Appreciate it. For sure. Until next time. Till next time. All right, man. <laughs> Thanks again. Yep. Peace. Later. Bye. Shake it up, stop when the clock hits 13. Sing one, one, two, three, four. Cuz, cuz, cuz. No one can do it like we do it, like we do it, like we do it. Cuz no one can do it like we do it, like we do it, like we do it. Cuz no one can do it like we do it, like we do it, like we do it. Cuz no one can do it like we do it, like we do it, like we do it.